Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's The Wonky Show. More grim news on the cost of living for students this week as Black Bullion published their annual study. There's a new accord on universities in Australia and MPs debate franchising. It's all coming up. Just in terms of, everyone talks about students being skinned, but in kind of a fun, funny way. It's not actually that fun to be like, oh, okay, I have £10 this week to spend on food if I want to do this one fun thing. And then everyone's like, you have to always sacrifice something, basically, which I think a lot of adults will be like, yeah, of course, but it's like... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson. I'm here to join in the hunt for Kate Middleton. As usual, three fantastic guests in Lancaster. Paul Ashwin is Professor of Higher Education at Lancaster University. Paul, your highlight of the week, please. Um, I've been looking at data from our seven-year study of chemistry and chemical engineering students. I'm going to track them through their degrees and three years post-graduation. And I've been looking at that data and seeing the ways in which engaging with those degrees is has changed the ways they engage with the world and it's just been very inspiring. Well, sounds fascinating. Uh, in Bournemouth, Hannah Malone is Vice President at Arts University Bournemouth Student Union. Hannah, your highlight of the week, please. Um, my highlight work related would be that we have just been approved for an indoor student community pantry space and just in my life is that I went on a trip to London on Monday to see a friend who lives in France that I've not seen him for yet. Brilliant stuff. And in Dalmuir this week, Debbie McVitie is editor at Wonky. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please. Well, I was going to brag about this on socials, but um, instead I've decided I'm going to do it here. So this morning I hit uh, 150 kilometres run over the last two months. So I've got an annual target of a thousand kilometres. So I am uh, not quite on track, but, but I'm, uh, I'm feeling reasonably good about progress. Great stuff. So, yes, we start this week with cost of living. Black Bullion has its annual study on money and well-being out, and it's grim news for commuters, Debbie. Yes. So, Black Bullion is a platform that helps students manage their money, um, and they publish an annual student money and well-being survey. And the latest one of those has been published this week. Uh, they've got a sample of 100, well, no, no, more than 100, 1,200 students. Um, and there's, a, and if you know, you can you can sort of break it down. There's a pretty good spread about across the undergraduate and postgraduate, different regions of the country, including you know including all four nations, uh, gender, age. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a solid sample. I guess, I mean, the key takeaway here really is, is that students are, are still obviously really struggling to make ends meet. Um, and we're sort of, we continue to sort of understand more about how that is affecting their ability to engage with their study. So a few kind of absolute headlines, 63% of those uh, surveyed have jobs alongside study. A massive 85% report that they're worried about money. Um, around half say that they've received a lower grade than expected due to cutting down going onto campus. Um, two in three say that not having enough money has negatively affected their experience. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's masses, you know, there's masses more I could carry on. Um, but what the survey finds consistently, and I think this is kind of new for this year, is, is that these issues seem to be affecting commuter students most intensely. Um, whether or not students have chosen to commute, you know, that's the kind of sort of experience that, that they kind of signed up for, or whether that's kind of been something that they felt they've had to do by necessity. Given that this is a group that's been recently added to the OFS Equality of Opportunity Risk Register, um, I can imagine we're going to be seeing a lot more uh, focus on the commuting student experience. That is assuming we don't get a major overhaul of student finance anytime soon. Paul, this is, uh, this is, this is, this is curious because uh, if we look at the student finance system for home domiciled students, um, 
commuter students you know get 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 more money and you can make an argument that says over the decade or, or over the last few decades um the the sort of uplift that um students that are studying away from home get um hasn't been kind of catching up with accommodation so what's going on here why why are commuter students kind of suffering um well my sense would be that commuter students tend to be poorer and you know to me this just fits with the general um, pattern of poverty that we've got in this country at the moment you know kind of 14.4 million people in relative poverty according to um house commons library report from december and and this just seems to fit with that pattern that we have huge levels of inequality in this country and huge levels of poverty and when you're in a situation like that that's bound to affect students as as well as other groups hmm. Hannah, you're about to open this uh, food pantry. Who, who are you expecting will uh, will use it? Honestly, I don't think the university realised how many students will be accessing it. Um, it was something that we're kind of quite late jumping on the bandwagon um, compared to other student unions up and down the country. And I don't know if it's because the university didn't feel that the cost of living affected us down in Bournemouth as much as the rest of the country, but it's clearly not the case. Um, I would say that definitely, yes, hitting our community students, but being an arts-focused, small and specialist university, we do see slightly less community commuter students in the sense that most of the work is hugely studio based um but that means that people are struggling with part-time or even full-time work to be able to afford accommodation to be able to stay down and stay near campus meaning that people are just dropping out failing university getting lower grades because their priority is on paying their rent paying to eat so they aren't coming to university they are working um so i think that's a huge change that we've seen down here in bournemouth the thing that really struck me in the report that was startling was that 56% of those who responded said they felt they got a lower grade because they were too hungry. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's Dickensian. How have we? How on earth did we end up here? Sort of thing. Um, and, and I guess the other one, Paul, is that is it? Have, have I? Have, have, I think I think this is right. Three percent of students said that they felt they had enough money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 kind of remarkable that that we've got here, and not in a good way. Debbie, there's um, we've got a blog on the site this week from um, Lee Elliott Major, uh, formerly of um, Sutton Trust and now Professor of Social Mobility at Exeter. And, you know, in, in a way, Lee's um, recommendations are relatively familiar. So, you know, for example, more flexible lecture and seminar schedules, allowing community students to better balance work. But we're back here again, aren't we, to this, you know, do you thin it out so that, do you thin out the student experience so that students can, you know, actually access it and achieve? Or, or in doing so, do you create a kind of dangerously thin new normal? Um, I think what's I think what is kind of happening here is is that we see a widening gap between students who are having kind of you know the student experience as normal because there is a cohort of you know we, we know that the kind of that group who is struggling it gets it's getting sort of bigger and bigger and bigger because of these wider cost of living challenges but I think there is still a core group who are quite well supported who are doing the extracurriculars who are on campus who are you know living living in student accommodation um, and 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 you know and, and you know while they may worry about money. Are, are basically having the kind of the experience that is very familiar to you know to those of us who've been to university any time in the last sort of forty years. Um, that it's 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 for university then the challenge is saying okay so you know this this is kind of the, this is the cell but this in you know this increasingly large group of students that's just not what they're getting. Um, you know they can't they cannot access this thing that they've been uh, you know that's been presented to them as the university experience. And then it's thinking really really hard. Okay so what is it that would be meaningful? For those students, because actually, if you're a commuter student, and a number, you know, a, a good chunk of these are commuter students by choice. You know, that's 
we're talking about mature students, people with families, people who want to, you know, do the kind of work and study thing. You need to kind of then really think about what does it mean to create meaningful learning experiences and meaningful university experience for that group? It doesn't have to be necessarily about, you know, having that kind of full-time thing. And I think if, you know, and I think if we go in with that mentality of being like, this is thinning it out, then that you sort of miss the opportunity to think about, you know, what, what is actually possible. But you also, I think, as you say, you just have to be really careful that you don't end up sort of essentially starting with this thing called the core experience that increasingly fewer students have access to and trimming it down to absolutely kind of you know you know minimal and then saying right well that's you know that's that that's what this is we do understand something by the concept of full-time study don't we debbie i mean of course it is the case that there may well be people who are now manifesting as full-time students that are you know to all intents and purposes part-time students but but even if you know someone you know isn't you know kind of 18 and and, and bodding around campus doing loads of extracurriculars we 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 understand the concept of full-time study in a way that appears to be being significantly undermined, don't we? Well, yeah, I mean, I think we just need to let go of that as a model. You know, I think, you know we can sort of say there will, there will be, a, you know, and, I, and actually I think to some extent, and I mean, obviously I feel really conflicted about this, but I think to some extent, you know, we live in a world in which some people have money and some people don't. And what you really fundamentally what you want is for anyone who wants that kind of full-time experience to have, be able to draw on a student support system that enables them to do that. Um, and to sort of suggest maybe that's off the table and we should look for alternatives feels like giving in. On the other hand, to kind of pretend that's not what's happening is, is you know, we're talking, you know, cloud cuckoo land. So I think that there is something, I think, you know, being able to say, let's 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 design a, a version of the student experience, you know, completely transparently and visibly and say, this is about working, balancing work and study. It's not, you know, it doesn't require you to do your degree over six years, but we can, you know, we, we, we can accommodate the fact that you're working part-time. Um, and that is, you know, and we just accept, and not only that, we'll support you to work part-time. We will look for good jobs that will help you, that will be meaningful. We will pay you to go on placement, you know, what, you know, basically sort of sit down and, and, and figure and figure that out in a way that says, this is a version of the, the higher education experience it is not the same as what we've kind of said is the kind of gold standard but actually it, it could be a different gold standard and, and you know and and we accept that you just don't have the money to pay for this kind of luxury version of the experience paul while we while we try to get there presumably at some point some of this stuff ends up showing up in outcomes so you know i guess the the hypothesis would be at some point this is going to hit non-continuation or completion or accessing the labor market uh, I mean, it doesn't feel like it has significantly yet. Is that a, is that a lag in the data problem, or you know what's go, you know when when what when might we assume that um, you know this will show up on the on the dashboard? Yeah, I mean, you, you you should expect it to begin to work its way through now, and then you've kind of got the kind of difficult situation for universities of that they'll then have the OFS on their tails for student non-completion that is to do with nothing to do with what the university is doing in terms of you know the the poverty of students reflecting the student finance system and wider conditions in society and i think you know i i completely understand where 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 deb is coming from in, in terms of that model but but the danger is that we end up with an elite higher education system for the privileged that has all the benefits of higher education and a much lesser system for everyone else and and the challenge of of equal but different i think is very very real and and not to be un underestimated in some cases that time is going to come a little bit sooner than we um imagine it and like you say whether it is a slip in the data or actually just not knowing what's going on on the ground i think it's coming up a lot sooner i'd say from a point of a students union i worry that actually the people that are at the top of our institutions are just so unaware of what's going on in the day-to-day -day of the rest of the population because they're in such a different situation compared to, say, our students who aren't able to spend 
£30 purchasing a food shop for however long period of time. And looking again at the Money Wellbeing Survey, students saying that they need an average of £621 a month to be able to just complete their degrees. And we're not even talking then about the student experience or surviving in other manners. Um, Students at our university, their case is that they say that if you were working a full-time job um, and you were on minimum wage, you'd be getting around, say, Eight, 18 grand, 19 grand. So how on earth do you expect students to live on half of that? Now, now, now th- 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 as well as this report, Hannah, this week, um, I, don't, I don't know if you've seen this. Um, uh, Politics Joe have put a sort of um, YouTube video out about students c- coping in terrible accommodation. But th- there's actually a bit towards the end where um, a couple of the students that are interviewed really talk about the difference between what they sort of expected the experience to be like, the, you know, the kind of mythology, the way that higher education is sold, what people expect to be able to do whilst being at university and then what it's kind of really like i have enough for the rent on its own not enough for bills uh lucky i'm in a good situation where my parents can pay my bills per month but then i don't have any spare money mm-hmm. so i have to have a job to pay for food or like even just to be able to save a little bit of money to do anything fun what jobs do you have uh, i work in a bar so nights so that's not terribly sociable hours for going to lectures or uh no, it's not great. I'll often finish uni at five and then start work at six and then finish work on a weekday, maybe at three or four and then later on a weekend. So it's not great, but I think you kind of just get used to it quickly. Yeah. Is this what you thought uni would be like? Um, not really, no. I didn't think I'd have to work as much as I do. I also didn't think that everyone else would be in a similar position. Like Everyone else I talked to is kind of like, oh, this wasn't what we were told. Just in terms of, everyone talks about students being skinned, but in kind of a fun, funny way. But it's not actually that fun to be like, oh, okay, I have £10 this week to spend on food if I want to do this one fun thing. And then everyone's like, you have to always sacrifice something, basically, which I think a lot of adults would be like, yeah, of course. But it's like, it's quite basic. Socialising once a week is too expensive for most people, I'd say. Do you get a sense that, um, you know, students are... I, I feel a sense of betrayal about what what university was kind of sold as for all for all of these years in comparison to what it's like now. Oh, one hundred percent. And I think in terms of say you weren't the first member of your family go go to go to university and you hear the stories of what it was say ten years ago. I hundred percent think that they feel betrayed in that fact that yes, they are coming to learn, but there are so many more levels to that which actually are fit, like they're just dropping out of the system. It has now just become learning if applicable in the sense of are you able to get to your lectures are you able to have eaten enough in a week that you've got enough energy to go out of the house and socialize and see people so it's kind of more become this kind of hunger games in a sense of actually what can you do to survive to get past the bare minimum so we're missing out on all the other experiences as you say that are sold to you in terms of studying higher education and I think something that's going to come from this is noise from this kind of generation of students to the following saying do not bother just go work full time everybody's got degrees who cares just go out and start surviving because that's just where we're getting to yeah now debbie i've been in uh, i've been in dublin this week um where uh, most recent data from the higher education authority like the old hefke says that um there's a progression to the second year dropout number here of 15 percent in uh the last available year 21 22 up from nine percent in 2019 20 now 
Um, let's imagine that happens. Let's imagine there's a sudden kind of cliff edge and there's a significant uptick in, in non-continuation. As Paul says, on one level, that will be sort of pinned on the sector. But on the other level, I, I guess there's a danger that a lot of the kind of political commentary would be down that sort of, well, they shouldn't be there anyway. Why aren't they doing an apprenticeship? Do you know what I mean? This, cause, this causes me to sort of, I guess, reflect a little bit on the question you asked, Hannah, about betrayal. Because I think, you know, in some sense, I feel like if there was a sense of betrayal, there would be a kind of, there's some energy behind that, there would be some politics behind that. The thing that really kind of broke my heart when reading the Black Bullion report was um, the students who say that money worry is affecting their mental health, three and four of those students say that they feel hopeless. And I think that kind of what, 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 you, what you get with, this, with these sorts of situations where it feels like there's no way out, you know, you get that, you, you get a sort of apathy um, and a kind of, oh, what's the point? And, you know, everything is difficult. And, you know, and, and Hannah kind of, my goodness, you know, there's just that kind of point about sort of saying, if, you know, if you're not, if you're not eating, if you're cold, you just don't have energy to kind of agitate and, and, and you know, seek political change. Of course you don't. Um, and I think that's kind of the situation when students becoming, you know, incredibly vulnerable to kind of being told that they were never good enough in the first place. And it only kind of reinforces that terrible narrative. And, um, and I think one of the things that as a sector, we've really got to get our heads around is how, how, how do we kind of collectively, um, and I'm always a little bit worried about saying we, because I realise, you know, at Wonky, we're not, you know, we're not on the front lines, as, as you know, lecturers and students are in that way. But, um, you know, we, we need to retain our sense of kind of indignity about this stuff. Um, you know, we can't we can't let ourselves give in to hopelessness. We've got to kind of sort of say, look, these people deserve um, an opportunity to do, you know, to do interesting stuff with their life, to, you know, to have, you know, as Paul would say, encounters with powerful knowledge. And, and we've got to kind of continue to sort of, I guess, shout about that and the importance of that. Um, I guess that sounds like that's, that's a pitch away from my kind of pragmatic approach <laughs> sort of five minutes ago. But um, I think, you know, I, I think it's quite, we have to be able to hold those two things in tandem, I think. And also shout, shout about the fact that, you know, for lots of students, they do have that experience. It's kind of, you know, there's a danger in feeling that you got into higher education five years, 10 years too late, which is common amongst students and staff. And it's always kind of been there. So <clears throat> there are very real problems here and very real issues to address address but there is a temptation to also miss the things that universities are doing now for the student experience in terms of the design of their curricula that they just weren't doing 20 years ago paul in terms of that energy question right so you know i i, I read the he press every morning and i i do get a sense that there is significantly more energy in the sector generally behind um you know complaining about recent immigration change and that potentially having an economic impact on place in terms of it, you know making it harder to recruit international students then there is the kind of energy around the 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 financial plight of of students is that is that inevitable or is that you know is that a kind of tactical mistake i yeah i i think it's a tactical mistake and and it's always the question for for say universities as and university leaders is they tend to for understandable reasons speak in terms of institutional interest but actually you know they'd have far more credibility if they spoke for the good of the sector if they spoke about what was needed to offer students a transformational education if they thought about the system as a whole rather than simply their place in it. So so I think it, you know, it's problematic that that universities seem to speak most loudly when they're financially threatened, rather than actually, you know, taking on their role of stewards of knowledge and speaking for the good of the sector. Yeah. Now, now, Hannah, later this morning, we're actually recording before the quarterly immigration stats come out, but later this morning, we will get 
uh, the update on quarterly immigration stats. And, um, you know, I might have to edit this out, but I'm assuming that the sort of January intake numbers, at least, will show, um, you know, a kind of significant reduction. And on one level or another, the government will be pleased about that. But, but you know, in terms of food bank usage, that, you know, you're about to kind of open a pantry, food bank, whatever it is. Everyone I talk to around the country says that it's non-EU international students that tend to dominate the you know, the kind of demand for those the, the, those kind of food banks. And it's just a few weeks ago that the British Council were saying that, look, you know, the, the, the effect of currency alone, so forget the immigration changes, even if the UK was successful in recruiting lots of international students in the way that it was perhaps two years ago, that, you know, they're not going to have a lot of money. Now, um, this, 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 this problem of the way in which we talk about higher education, either to home domiciled students or international students in terms of what it will be like, and then the difference between what we say and then what it's really like, that, that, that is a really tough one to crack, isn't it? Because if you're a university marketing department, you don't want to be saying this is all going to be miserable. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And something that actually I'd say that, um, we're having here at AUB is that, um, I don't really have enough information around kind of who is accessing what in terms of needs. But I would say that our um, kind of things like usage, usage for our current kind of sharing shed, which is a, a sort of on-campus food bank, was home students in some sense. And actually, the problem that we're having um, as a student union in terms of our international students is what uh, cost living initiatives we're putting in place that they then cannot get behind. So in terms of being an arts-based university, having um, an make a shop in the university that uh, is about an hour from campus that students can put their artwork in to sell and things like we just did an art uh, auction led by the student union um, and just other commission-based products that none nobody can get involved in due to visa compliancy so actually what we're trying to look forward is what kind of initiatives can we put in place that aren't currently being offered in higher education or within the university that is still supporting these students as much as possible in terms of yes being able to eat sleep um, have a good life in that sense but also these real world opportunities that it's just something that we're kind of struggling with yeah and again debbie in terms of energy it, it, it feels like we ought to kind of just go back about 18 months to when lots of people were, were really focused on trying to get the cost of study down is that you know has the sector done everything it can or is there still a little bit of kind of gas in the tank to try and you know work out how to reduce costs here i mean i don't know i i do know that um there is you know widespread effort to try and and and, and deal with it i think the I think there's a sort of perhaps a sort of look, a looking again uh, whether the sorts of things that are being put in place are essentially responding to what you know we called it a cost of living crisis right you know we thought we thought it was going to be um, you know a, a really difficult year and then things would perhaps hopefully kind of revert to normal if if this is and I think this is a kind of phrase that the, is actually in the Black Bullion report is kind of if the new normal um, is 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 this then I think that probably merits. Uh, a, a careful look at the options for for sort of essentially long term sustaining of um, you know student support and and you know I, I can't I can't speak to what university I'm sure these univer you know I'm sure universities are having these conversations but I think rather than kind of say well we've got you know you know we've we've, we've got our food bank and that's ongoing and the, you know those those things may continue to be necessary um, really thinking about what that kind of medium term plan is for 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 kind of keeping students you know, as, as, as warm and well-fed as, as, as is possible under the circumstances. Now, earlier this week, MPs on the Public Accounts Committee debated franchising in HE and our own David Carnahan was listening in. 
So, the Public Accounts Committee hearing on franchised higher education and potential fraud therein promised much but ultimately delivered very little. The impetus for the session was the National Audit Office report on the sometimes murky world of franchising and the widely reported case dealt with by the Office for Students, Student Loan Company and Department for Education last year that featured in the report. This was the one where a lead provider raised a reportable event concerning widespread academic misconduct at a franchise partner and then withdrew their students from the provision unilaterally. The Office for Students and Student Loans Company have made decent progress in clawing back payments, so there's still a little bit of work to do on recovering maintenance loans. Listening to the respective chief executives and permanent secretaries at the session, you do get the sense that some kind of a lessons learned exercise has been happening to address the way responsibility and permission to act seem to fall between the three actors in this space. So there's going to be a new fortnightly information sharing meeting between SLC, DFE and OFS, and perhaps more interestingly, serious discussions between ministers and officials about whether all providers delivering franchised higher education provision should be registered with the Office of Students. I should add here that quite a lot of them already are. See, for instance, the list that we linked to Lee's Trinity University in our recent article. Meanwhile, Universities UK is busy updating various codes of practice and we may finally get proper definitions of attendance and engagement for reporting purposes by the summer. We possibly could have got more out of this session had the committee been on form. It was not, with questions often ranging far behind the topic and ranging from the fundamental, why do we have franchises, to the profoundly confused. A delay in starting and problems with the sound did not give the impression the committee or those briefing it were really on top of things. Probably the most interesting passage was Susan Lapwood's characterisation of interim findings from this year's financial returns to OFS. Things are going to get worse with more deficits and weaker cash flow before they get better. And there are a small group of providers whose dependence on income from franchise arrangements is material to their sustainability. These providers are the ones that are going to be watching the next steps of this inquiry and of our regulators very carefully. Now, next up this week, the final report of Australia's Universities Accord is out and a shake-up is coming, Hannah. Yeah, so the Australian Minister of Education just released the final report of the Universities Accord. This was a big review of the country's higher education system backed by the current government with the goal uh, being to make long-lasting changes. So the Accord was led by Mary O'Kane, a former university vice-chancellor, and had former ministers from different political parties uh, kind of getting involved. It took over a year with lots of different input from various groups. So these recommendations include increasing the number of Australians with HE qualifications to 55% by 2050. They also suggest funding the students based on need and equity. So research would get full funding and there's talk about changing student finance and having a national student ombudsman. So now the big question is whether the government will actually fund these changes. So some universities and experts are pushing back, especially against the idea of a future fund uh, that all universities would contribute to, with some paying more than others. Uh, And there's also some concern whether this will just lead to, yet again, more rules and regulations. Yes. Now, there's a lot in here, Paul. What jumped out at you? Um, The thing that jumped out at me is is the model of higher education, tertiary education that's spoken about in the report. So... We kind of get, you know, what's quite common in these kind of reports, a kind of very inspiring objective for for the tertiary education system in Australia, that it needs to underpin a strong, equitable, resilient democracy and drive 
national economic and social development and environmental sustainability. And then you look at the education they're talking about. Um, the word skills is mentioned three times as many as, as the word knowledge. Um, the economy is mentioned 81 times, society 57. You know, the version of education that's being given here is focused around micro-credentials, a utilitarian version of education, rather than engagement with knowledge that changes students' sense of who they are and what they can do in the world. So so for me, within this report, there's almost a sense of, of again, universities saying, well, give us the funding, and then we'll quite happily go to a model of education that is, isn't actually what we're trying to achieve in higher education. So for me, I, I found it quite depressing. <laughs> and, and and I guess that's interesting, isn't it, Debbie? Because um, you know, actually, to some extent, right across the globe, there's lots of talk of skills and micro credentials and so on. Is this, um, you know, is this is, is this a sector attempting to kind of say the right thing to government in order to put itself on a on a strong financial footing and then deliver some of those other things that Paul talks about, or is this potentially going to be super transformational? Well, I think, I mean, my understanding is, without kind of having direct experience of the Australian context, is that there's a reasonably kind of good political consensus behind these proposals. So I think there's a kind of sense that, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever government is in charge that there will be. So I think in that sense, having a kind of national agenda suggests that, you know, that there will, there will you know, inevitably with these sorts of things, you do end up with a bit of cherry picking, don't you? So, you know, they, these things never get, get kind of ruled out in their entirety. And there's always kind of, um, you know, bun fights and dilutions. Um, I think the kind of question, the thing about um, skills and micro-credentials and stackable stackable qualifications i mean yeah this is very much a kind of sort of sort of international discourse i i suppose i would perhaps um i, I sort of understand where paul's coming from and you know and sort of saying that this is you know this 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 isn't the you know this isn't what higher education is or or it doesn't sort of emphasize the kind of really transformative bit of higher education i think often what you know policymakers are trying to do is not to sort of describe um you know, higher education as it is, but to sort of say, you know, the, the pursuit here, I think, is of diversity of, 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 of and, and, and I, re I realise that, you know, not, not everyone will, will agree with, with that, with that as a way forward. But I think one of the things that, you know, this, this accord is kind of proposing is, is that, you know, we need, we, you know, we need both. We need, we need academic, we need academic pathways. We need, uh, you know, there, there are, we need better, uh, alignment between vocational, educational, and training, and you know, and, and being able to transition into university. We need kind of preparatory things that uh, courses that enable people to progress into university study. So I don't think it's kind of saying you know we think higher education is entirely skills based and entirely vocational. It's saying that there's an aspect of it that uh, you know uh, that that aspect of it needs to be kind of better integrated into into the whole. Um, and we need kind of uh, universities that that are sort of able to kind of be you know be expansive in in, in the kind of breadth of their offer. Hannah, there was um, in, in that there's, there's actually a whole chapter called "Putting Students at the Centre." That's a phrase that um, I've, I've heard before in higher education policy. Um, but you know, if, if we reflect back on the conversation we were having earlier, there's a, there's actually a whole section on you know recognizing the reality and importance of student part time work. Um, you know, making sure that students take on enough kind of study load, uh, you know, helping students find work. Do you do, do you get a sense that Australia is at least kind of you know, starting to find a balance in this, this, this kind of full-time students aren't, aren't completely full-time thing anymore. You know, is this the sort of direction at least that we should be going in? Yeah, I'd really hope so. And it kind of chimes back in on something that Debbie mentioned earlier. If actually over here we did decide that it is the kind of case of, no, we're advertising certain part-time jobs uh, through the institution that we know aren't going to use and abuse students. And we kind of take 
a well-rounded approach in the sense is that we're not just kind of letting them out and like kind of thriving for themselves we help in that sense so I think in that term and in that chapter that is something that if it's going to happen it happens well is something that they're addressing and kind of getting a hold of in the sense of they are there to support the well-being of the students in the sense of knowing real world issues and not letting that kind of mask the fact I think something we do well over here is actually masking all these issues in the sense of how we promote higher education instead of holding on to them and saying look we know that this is a problem but we have these this this and this in place to help you get through that time yeah I mean I guess the other thing Paul that that really struck me in the report was that it, it mentions AI once now uh, is it possible to do a sort of, you know, a big review of the university sector at this point and then to publish a God knows how long report and then not talk about, you know, what is happening with AI, both on teaching and learning and careers and so on? Well, clearly it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and and to be honest, that doesn't worry me too much. I You know, I kind of think AI at the moment is at the forefront of my our minds. We'll integrate it in the same way as MOOCs was going to transform higher education back in the seventies. It was television. You know, th these things always come along, and I, I, I think they can be overestimated. I think you know the big issue for me around this is is that you know this wasn't written by policymakers. This this was written by a committee that included higher education insiders. And if you look at the version of education that they kind of give through this report, you know, this idea that there are skills needed by the by the economy and we can quite easily develop, you know, micro credentials that match the skills. It's such a such an impoverished view of what it means to educate people through tertiary education. And that and that's the thing for me that's so worrying. This is higher education completely undermining what we're trying to do educationally. And and that, you know, it goes back to our earlier conversation about, you know, universities really looking after knowledge and the higher education system rather than just their own interests. And the worry for me of this report is it speaks to the individual interests of universities in terms of funding, but actually their responsibilities to educate students in meaningful ways has kind of gone by the wayside in this impoverished, you know, discourse about skills. And Debbie, I guess the question now for policymakers in Australia will be, if universities are saying it is universities that can do the skills thing, that presumably there's a danger that all sorts of other bits of the education system will turn around and say, well, you could, but you know, there are other ways to do this and they're cheaper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 the thing that really struck me actually on that one um the thing that really jumped out at me from, and I think that will, will, be re, will, will be really interesting in terms of informing a UK conversation is, so one of the proposals is to establish an Australian Tertiary Education Commission. Now, I don't, I, honestly, I don't know if they've got further education colleges in Australia. Uh, it's, the sort, it's the sort of thing I'm probably going to go away and have to find out. Um, but, you know, we're, talk, we're talking about kind of, you know, a diverse, diverse kinds of provider kind of aligned under one under one kind of, you know, funder and, funder and regulatory body. Um, the way that that's framed, though, is about leadership and stewardship, um, not about funding and regulation. Although actually, if you look at what the kind of duties of that commission would be, it's very much about funding and regulating in the kind of way that we're all very familiar with. Um, but the kind of basis for that is very much about saying, if the system is going to, to work um, and be coordinated, it's there's going to have to be um, government intervention. You know, there's going to have to be an organisation whose job it is, is to think about where to put the funding, where to put the places, um, 
you know, co- co- coordinate this, uh, this this future fund that universities are going to have to, you know, going to have to contribute to along along with government to kind of target development. Um, and I think there's a really kind of, op- you know, there's, there's sort of inevitably an open question here, isn't there, about sort of saying, well, if you've got uh, lots of different organisations and they're all delivering stuff and you kind of let the market decide and the kind of, uh, the kind of pr- proposition in this accord is, is, is that, well, you can't do that. Um, you've, there's got to be a degree of coordination. There's got to be kind of targeted input. So they're talking about um, growing higher education in places where, where it, there is there is perceived you know there is a need for it and um, they're talking about a more coordinated approach to international education to kind of make that sustainable and kind of you know insist that institutions take a risk management approach to to kind of things like uh, you know the concentration of international students in particular disciplines or uh, you know the sort of there, there needs to be affordable housing um, and I think to a lot of people in the UK sector actually that that could feel quite sort of welcome I think you know that sort of sense that um, there's there's a degree of coordination here um, but also I think for you know for a lot you know I'm sure I'm sure many Australian institutions and probably quite a few UK ones at the kind of individual level would say, well, actually, that feels quite constraining and we're not very comfortable with that. So I think, um, you know, as as the UK sector looks to the next government and, and what might happen with the regulatory system and, and the extent to which that might become, um, you know, a, next, a future government might seek to introduce a greater degree of coordination, we should probably be looking quite carefully at what, you know, how, how that uh, debate is, is panning out in Australia, as well, of course, as, in, as closer to home, we've got something very similar going on in Wales. So much of students' lives takes place under the radar, but it's students' encounters around campus, their confidence in independent learning and the pressures of juggling their work and personal commitments that shape how they engage with learning and teaching. To really enable students to thrive requires knowing about the full extent of their lives, not just the bits that universities can most readily see and touch. But time and money are in short supply for universities and students, and with no let up on funding inside, carefully choosing interventions that will help students to both survive and thrive has become more important and even tougher. So at our Secret Life of Students event, we'll be interrogating the contemporary higher education policy questions through the student lens, bringing together sector leaders and managers, as well as student leaders and student union managers, to figure out how to respond in the student interest. What role should universities and student unions play in stoking or calming conflict on campus? What are the expectations we should place on students themselves to create a good learning experience? How are they learning? And how can we both measure it and support it outside of the classroom? On the day, we'll round up key findings in the student experience for the past year, and we'll launch exciting new findings on the student experience beyond the classroom. That's The Secret Life of Students, London, the 12th of March. See you there. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Now, finally this week, there's been all sorts of international figures floating around, Paul. Yeah, so there's kind of 
three three elements to this in relation to particularly international students. So first of all, kind of data from the universities UK that international student demand is falling. Um, Enrolments for postgraduate taught courses have fallen by over 40% in January. And then also Enrollee, um, looking at 60 universities, has found that deposits from international students have fallen by a third. Um, this is in relation um, to changes in the visa requirements in terms of dependence and also uncertainty over post-study um, work visas. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is the London Economics Report commissioned by HEPI, Universities UK and Kaplan International Pathways has found that since 2019-20, the next con- net contribution of international students to the economy is um, over 62 billion. Um, and then the third part is that this is way beyond what the public think is contributed by international s- students. Most think that, or, or a significant amount think that they um, are there a net cost rather than net, net benefit. And only 3% have any sense of how much international students actually contribute to the economy. So these three things together kind of show how successful higher education is in bringing in international students, but how that's under complete threat by these visa changes and by the kind of ill-informed rhetoric around international students and what they contribute and really a lack of political leadership. Because it's clear that most people don't really know what international students contribute. And yet, in some ways, they be, you know, it's seen as a problem. It's seen as a problem if their dependents come and then we're losing this benefit. And given the financial situation of universities, given that there's been a freeze on what home students can be charged at undergraduate level, this presents a real, real problem for the higher education sector. Now, Debbie, we've got new um, uh, immigration figures uh, out, uh, at least on the day we record, on Thursday this morning. Uh, We've had a quick look. um, And because of the way the Home Office presents them, um, you know, here's the number. In 2023, there were 457,000 sponsored study visas, 5% fewer than in 2022, but 70% higher than 2019. Now, that, 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 that sentence doesn't feel like it matches the sort of rhetoric that the sector's been putting out over the past, you know, few months. No, I mean, yeah, fi- yeah 5% fewer doesn't, doesn't feel like very much. But I mean, what, what will happen is, is that sort of six months hence, we'll discover, you know, the scale of the, you know, the, the, the real scale of, of the problem. And then, and by then, of course, universities will, you know, it will, it will the damage will have been done um the i think you know we could rehearse i suppose you know why international students are a success story for uk higher education why they're an important export industry and they're bringing in lots of money and universities uk sort of you sort of does that very competently um i'm going to kind of take the conversation in a different direction i read an absolutely fascinating um uh, substack this week by sam friedman um who has done a piece of work uh interviewing 100 conservative voters about immigration um, and very kind of briefly trying to kind of get trying to get an understanding about what is it that conservative you know people who voted conservative in 2019 many of whom are not planning to vote conservative in, in 2024 of course and what they really think about immigration and what he found was that most most of them you know with a very with a few you know with a handful of tiny exceptions are absolutely relaxed about international students and this this you know this confirms um everything we know they're they're, they're a bit less relaxed about dependence um and there's you know and there's a sort of worry about because it's all about kind of access to resources and um you know and, and the sort of sense sense of sense about um, you know, yeah, that sort of thing, yeah. Um, but you know, but 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 by and large, the idea, and actually this, and this remains true of of any anyone who comes to this country who is you know bringing kind of value in that way, whether it's you know th- to study and to kind of do interesting stuff, to kind of work for the NHS, whatever it is, 
by and large, conservative voters are, are incredibly relaxed about those groups. They're worried about what they call illegal immigration. And of course, that's, you know, we can sort of get into the kind of details on that. And that's not really what we're here to talk about. The thing that uh, Sam kind of sort of suggests is, is that there's uh, the conservatives need to let go of this whole immigration thing entirely. You know, there's, there's things that they might do. Um, in, in this space on a kind of policy level, of course, you know, and, and particularly, you know, continuing to kind of worry about the small boats and so on. But the they cannot outflank the right on um and, and on on immigration. And in, if anything, what they're doing by continuing to talk about it is kind of bolstering support for um for, you know for for far right political parties, further right political parties on this issue. And actually, um, it's by, by, by simply kind of raising awareness of the issue. So this is not about people in their communities being confronted with immigrants um, and, and kind of and, and feeling under pressure about it. You know, th- these are people who, who worry about the possibility of people coming uh, coming in and kind of not getting their fair share or whatever, because of course, we're talking about conservative voters here. And that's a thing that conservative voters worry about. But it is, you know, Sam sort of suggests that really, it is the fact that the, the Tories keep banging on about immigration, that and, and, and kind of announcing that they're kind of clumping down in this way that is kind of giving salience to the issue. And I think that's really, really telling because I think it gives a bit of a blueprint about, um, you know, how, how not to, to handle these issues, you know, essentially kind of cutting off, cutting off your nose to spite your face, but, you know, it, in this context of international students and their dependents. But Hannah, here's the, here's the interesting thing. You know, this is back to the conversation we were having earlier. If, if the British Council is right and, you know, even to some extent regardless of the kind of immigration policy aspects of all of this, that that international students, particularly from those kind of growth countries in the global south, are increasingly going to find it really, really hard to afford to come to the UK, um, you know, afford cost of living and so on. That we've 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 got a kind of long term problem, regardless, haven't we, in terms of students just being able to kind of experience what it is that they were told they would experience this time by their agent or by, uh, you know, the YouTube videos that they're sort of watching or whatever. So linking to what Paul said about the uh, UUK survey, uh, talking about how only. 3% of the population understand the scale of the uh, economic contribution made by international students. I think our problem now here is actually this could be taken way more seriously or listened to and heard if more people understood the implications of this decrease. Yes, it is a 5% decrease. And yes, it's still up by 70% or whatever from our findings today. But actually, I think we're going to watch that play out over the next few years. And it's not about them having anybody else join us here in the UK. It's about the implications of that economically. And as you've just mentioned, Jim, then going to stop coming if the quality of life is as poor as it is for, say, home students, let alone students who are paying so much more money to come and have a poorer experience. Paul, the, tactically, I guess, if if the Tories need to stop banging on about immigration, maybe the higher education sector needs to stop banging on about immigration. And, you know, you can kind of see why the higher education sector is banging on immig- about immigration in, in, in relation to these figures. But, you know, wh- one of the things I've been trying to kind of work out on, on long journeys around um, uh, around the country this week is we, we, we uh, on, on the face of it, according to the OECD, have quite an expensive per student higher education system. And one of the, you know, there was obviously an event this week um, um, where, where again, you know, different people from the sector were talking about, um, you know, the, the, the need for universities to be better funded. What, do, do you have a sense of why it is that UK higher education does look so expensive per student? And, and, and is it that 
um you know that it's important that it's that expensive and we need to kind of uh you know that 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 bolsters our reputation and that's you know it's why it's regarded as so high quality or you know are we getting kind of you know a reduction in per head spending here by stealth yeah and i think that's right and and clearly we have a very particular model of higher education in this country you know most students you know are at a university that tries to have a campus experience tries to have the sense of a university as an institution and that has particular forms of funding attached to it as you mentioned there's cross cross subsidies between teaching and research and i don't think universities are very good at making the case for why um a degree costs the amounts it costs and indeed most of the the reaction to being asked that question is outrage that they should be asked it's kind of like you know how, how dare you ask why it costs and and i think that sense of offering a financial case for why higher education is worth the investment for both students and the government is something that higher education needs to be much better at. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Paul, Hannah, Debbie, DK, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen. We'll be back next week. Mark will be here. Until then, stay wonky. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.